0: American exceptionalism. The belief that the US stands unique among all the world's nations, a shining city on the hill, as Ronald Reagan put it. And while some on the left might be tempted to poo-poo that notion, in some ways it is indisputably true. Take maternal mortality, for instance. Between 1991 and 2014, bucking just about every international trend, the maternal mortality rate in the United States more been doubled. The U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world. In fact, we rank lower than countries like Bulgaria, Kazakhstan, and Saudi Arabia. And if you break that down by ethnicity, the numbers are even starker. According to a report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, African American, Native American, and Alaska Native women are about three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. In Louisiana, 72 black women will die for every 100,000 live births. According to World Bank rankings, that puts us right between Syria, a country in the midst of a devastating civil war, and Kyrgyzstan, which has a GDP per capita of about $1,200. America, sweetie, we can do better. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. You might think that wealth provides a shield against this racial disparity, but that shield is only partial. Although college-educated black women fare better than non-college-educated black women, they are still more likely to die in childbirth than white women who never graduated from high school, according to a study of New York City mothers. This was highlighted recently when both Serena Williams and Beyonce endured life-threatening complications in their pregnancies.
1: And then they had to check for, you know, blood clots and everything. So they were doing all these different tests and everything was negative. I'm like, listen, I need you to run a CAT scan with the dye because I have a pulmonary embolism in my lungs. I know it. I know I, I've had this before. I know my body.
0: Now, the reasons for that disparity are complex, and they are deep.
1: To me, structural racism is the number one, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's our oldest culprit. It's the most ingrained culprit. We have a healthcare system that fundamentally does not want or look forward to everybody being healthy and thriving. Mm. We have a healthcare system that is fundamentally built upon who is deserving and who is undeserving. Mm. And race has a huge amount to do with that because of the way that undeserving and deserving plays into racial hierarchies even outside of healthcare.
0: That was Dr. Sanjeev Sriram, a pediatrician who practices in Southeast DC, a predominantly black part of the capital which just so happens to be the most dangerous place in the country to give birth.
1: I remember um, a public health expert, you know, guiding us through the numbers here in D.C. And she was saying that, you know, when she had been to sub-Saharan Africa, that the numbers were comparable to what Mm. we were seeing in southeast D.C. And yet just across a river in a small town like D.C., you've got some of the highest rates of maternal success. And so how is it that you have failure and success so close together and separated only by a river?
0: Dr. Sriram is also an activist. I first met him earlier this summer when he took part in the protests against the closure of Philadelphia's Hahnemann Hospital. And it is as an activist that he has crafted an alter ego, one designed to put people at ease when talking to an authority figure.
1: When I would go out to rallies and, and protests, and i would wear the white coat over just like my regular work clothes i got the feeling that people felt kind of intimidated mm-hmm. like oh i don't know if i can really approach this guy like let me have like everything put together first and i'm i'm a very casual person and so i thought you know what let's just like cut all of that and let's at the same time appropriate or you know, reappropriate some symbology here And I just threw on, I'm a comic book nerd, and I thought, you know, I'm going to be Dr. America. And I just, you know, threw on this shirt and put the white coat on top.
0: And so Dr. America was born. The doctor dropped by the campaign headquarters last week to explain why Bernie's Medicare for All plan would do much, although not everything, to close that gap. Dr. Sriram explained that like most disparities, Racial health disparities, including the high maternal mortality rate experienced by women of color, are rooted in a large number of factors. The problem is structural and intersectional. The problem is about race, it's about class, it's about housing, it's about healthcare, it's about substantive justice.
1: All of those hierarchical systems that are built upon race. End up having an impact on health just because of the way that now that we're learning more about toxic stress, the mm-hmm. way that things happen along the epigenetic uh, line, people are born vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, vulnerable people struggle through their life, not even knowing that they were put in this position for no fault of their own. And these vulnerabilities become part of almost like family heirlooms that are passed down the line and either get exacerbated or every now and then maybe a little bit
0: better, Yeah.
1: but it's still like not necessarily wiped out at the root.
0: So I, I wanna pause, because you, you said epigenetics, and, I, and yeah. we're getting a little bit in the weeds here, yeah. but what's funny is I was actually explaining epigenetics to my boyfriend the other yeah, night, Yeah. because I think, I think it's fascinating. I was a history of science major, mm-hmm. and in school, right, we grow up and we learn, okay, you know, Darwinian evolution works a certain way. Your genes don't really change. Like, it's natural selection over time. Yeah. There's this guy named Linnaeus, and he thought that, like, genes changed. And that's why you have a different kind of, right. you know, you can, like, you change in your life, and then you pass that on, and that right. was supposed to be hogwash. Now we're learning that what happens to you during your life can yeah. actually have an effect on your Offspring. O- offspring.
1: And especially during childhood because everything is so plastic and so vulnerable at that time. So when you look at this country's history, we've been terrible to children of color mm. since the very beginning. Mm. I know that I mean, this is not to, you know, disrespect anything happening at the border, but we've been separating children from their parents right. since the country's foundation. Right. It's I mean, it's a huge part of who this country has been. And that trauma that yeah. starts at such a you know vulnerable young age, it is how the seeds of mistrust and stress and I, I think that the the stress of who can I like who can I rely upon is anything going to be stable around me. And to live your entire childhood like that, I mean, you, you we can only imagine what kind of adults we create at the end of all of that. right. And the same thing is happening at the border. and the same thing happens even in mundane exercises where kids fall in and out of insurance, mm-hmm. where their parents get you know insured, uninsured. All of those, like those might not be like on the same level of stress as being separated from your family, but there's still most definitely some kind of an impact because your stability has been upended.
0: Right. So what it sounds like is there's like, there's this kind of complex and inextricable relationship between racism Mm -hmm. and some of the consequences of racism that are a a jumble of race and economic factors, right? So, uh, you know, in a racist society where it's more difficult to um, secure housing or where there's an income gap that, that means that black and brown people are disproportionate living and low-income housing. That means you have the stress of not having secure housing. That means pregnant mothers are enduring the stress of not knowing where they're going to live or where they're going to be right. able to give birth to their child. The stress of not having insurance, of not being able to get prenatal care, of yeah. not being able to get postnatal care because of a lack of insurance, of living in housing that might give them exposure to lead and other kinds of elements. How do we start to go about ameliorating all of that like complex like cluster of yeah. factors that is going into these disparities
1: there's something about america that hates a, that hates confronting its vulnerability mm. and just owning that all of us are vulnerable mm whether by biology, history, finances, whatever, all of us have vulnerability of some kind or the other. And if you don't feel you have vulnerability yet, just give biology or time, you know, it, its due course. And yeah. before you know it, you're going to be vulnerable in some kind of way. Yeah. And I think that instead, what we do is we attach vulnerability to virtue. Mm. And that if you are vulnerable, then that clearly is a lack of virtue. And Mm. if you are invulnerable, that's because you were virtuous. Mm. And it's in in fact, the truth of it is, is that a lot of the things that we consider virtuous behaviors are things that happen in safe, stable environments. Mm. It's easy to do delayed gratification and study for an exam and not go hang out with your friends when you kind of feel like, oh, but if I do this now, it's going to pay off. Yeah,
0: or the financial advice that says, well, why aren't poor people saving? Right,
1: (laughs) right, right. right. You don't
0: have any money to put aside. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, and I see this even in healthcare where, you know, I've got colleagues who criticize moms for having, like, you know, their nails done and the hair done and, you know, their health is, is not doing all that great. And that criticism of, like, well, if she has the money to do all that for her hair and her nails, like, why doesn't she take better care of her health? And... I have to always hit that pause button at work to say that, you know how good she feels after she gets that nails and hair done? That might be the only time she gets yeah. to feel good about herself for the next quarter. Yeah. And whereas, like, yeah, doing the work that it takes to be healthy. Sure, there's a long-term payoff for that, but no time during the, all the the grind of being healthy do you get to ever look at yourself in the mirror or like just take a step back and feel I feel good like you know, this is this is nice you know in a in a very concrete yeah. satisfying way that getting your hair and nails done kind of does it. Yeah,
0: I was literally just having this conversation with uh, the woman who sits next to me at work whose nails look very nice. <laughs> Remind, do not. (laughs) (laughs) I want to. I want to talk about the particular issue, which is that one thing that's really interesting about the racial disparities in this area is that it affects even higher income black women, right? So some high profile cases happened in the last few years where Serena Williams had a very difficult pregnancy and so did Beyonce Knowles. What's going on there? Is it that those kind of stressors are still, the race related stressors are still affecting them? You know, why is it that even highly educated, affluent women are still affected?
1: Well, I think that that's almost kind of like where you see racism do this turn of that, oh, well, we already know that black people are invulnerable to pain. And Mm -hmm. if you're a wealthy black person, then you must have like the double invulnerability Mm -hmm. of wealth and being black. So what's your problem? Mm -hmm. Like you should be doing great. And it's not recognizing that, no, pregnancy is a risky endeavor. Mm -hmm. There are tons of vulnerabilities that come up with going through a pregnancy just as a human. Or you know, r- regardless of like, even before you get into like, what what are your financial resources like? What is your housing situation like? Your education like? Even before you get into all of that, just having a human body go through the process of making another human body mm-hmm. is a stressful thing. And
0: <laughs> I can imagine. You know,
1: <laughs> and I and I think that you know what, at least for for me, what I took away from you know from um, Serena Williams and, and Beyonce's experiences were that. You know, welcome to how, like, that human vulnerability Mm. does not care, Mm. you know, how much money you made or what contracts you signed or how famous you are or how many followers you have. Mm. Biology, like, you know, will get you one way or the other.
0: A A fatalist might say, okay... Serena Williams and Beyonce, this can happen to them. Mm -hmm. Is this even an issue about, you know, you know, is there all the kind of like housing stress? You know, if it's happening to wealthy women who don't have those concerns, should we even care about everything else? Like what should how, how should we be focusing our efforts somewhere other than you know, providing insurance and all these other things which are also predictors uh, of high mortality rates. I
1: mean, I I think that that, to me, like, I've I've heard that fatalist Mm -hmm. attitude, too. And I've always felt that it's a bit of a Mm -hmm. cop-out. It's because I kind of feel that that is never something that we would accept for our own families. Mm. When my wife was pregnant, Mm. I I mean, again, I got in touch with, like, how— Risky, everything is, and how powerless you can feel as a partner mm. when you're at the hospital, and the only thing that you think that is going to help you out is knowing some of the jargon that you overhear, mm. and even that, it's, it's still, you know, like not enough power to create outcomes. Yeah, you're still kind of at like these places where biology is going to do what it's got to do. And you do. feel that way
0: even as a physician. Even as a
1: physician, you feel that way. And so when I look at the things in our world that we do have some kind of impact upon, I feel that you have a moral imperative to build upon those things. I, I mean, my brown butt is not here mm. talking to you as a doctor because anybody played it safe, because mm. anybody gave in to fatalism mm. back in the day and felt that, well, you know, those Brits had a really good empire. <laughs> and, hey, you know, they're on every continent <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, you win some, you lose some. And they won that. I mean, nobody did that. Like yeah. instead, it like, you know, people organized. People, you know, I mean, like fought for their freedom. And even in this country, to go from being a second class citizen to being equal one is still an incomplete process. There's still yeah. tons of work to be done but if it wasn't for the risks that were taken for and th- there was no predictable outcome for anything that happened so far in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. right like my being here is not was not guaranteed right and so because people were willing to sacrifice who didn't even know me and didn't even know this life trajectory that I'm on i feel compelled to pay that forward i feel that well this is proof that effort does work yeah. does and even if that that payoff is not something that you'd necessarily going to see with your own eyes in your own family line
0: what strikes me about the Serena Williams example is that the narrative at, you know as she tells it is that she felt like something was wrong mm-hmm. she raised her voice and she was ignored and and that's the piece where we see some racial bias. You know, yeah. there are studies that show, as you mentioned earlier, that doctors will perceive black patients to be in less pain mm-hmm. than white patients. I read that that's even at the root of why there's these disparities between where the opiate crisis has hit. Right. You know, more opioids were just given right. to white patients and has had this negative consequence that they are facing more of an addiction problem, although it's spreading more into the black community as well. But the part of, there's another part of that story, which is that perhaps because she's empowered as Serena Williams, Ultimately she keeps making noise. Right. And ultimately, you know, she survived. Yeah. Where so many women didn't. Yeah. So when she's brought up as an example of why power and class is irrelevant, I would you know, I would caution people to say It is not a panacea. Right. You know, being wealthy certainly does not save you. Black women, even as you know, wealthy educated black women have outsized, disproportionate the disparity exists absolutely. And so without addressing racism, there is still an unconscionable gap, even among those who are very affluent. However, there are a set of factors that we can address without Doing this laudable but very difficult task of alleviating racism, mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit about like what are some of the controllable, you know, like in terms of a policy, yeah. from a policy perspective. You know, what can we do as administrations, as policymakers, as politicians, as as advocates to shrink the gap? What tools right. are in our disposal?
1: One of the first tools that I that I think of is Medicare for all, mm. simply because it gets people through the door mm. of clinic. And I, I mean, again, like, I don't believe Medicare for all is going to fix all of racism in mm-hmm. medicine or anything like that. I know. like
0: <laughs> I don't think there are very many people who I, do. I
1: mean, and, and I think that, you know, there will be, still will be tons left to right. do in terms of racial justice, particularly in healthcare, care, even after the passage of Medicare for all. But as far as getting patients to the door that is a powerful tool that we have at our disposal. Because when you look at the uninsured currently, 59% of America's uninsured are people of color.
0: Mm.
1: Now, we were told by all the demographic experts that America was not going to be a majority-minority country until about 2040. Mm -hmm. And yet our uninsured population is already there. And that's not an accident. That is a result of policy Being, you know, either used or unused or abused or attacked in ways that leave people in certain specific people of color to be very vulnerable to, you know, to in the terms of their health, which should be a basic human right.
0: I mean, a lot of the states that, you know, rejected Medicaid expansion, for instance, under Obamacare are these redder states but that are also blacker states. Disproportionately black people are living in these southern states like Mississippi, South Carolina, et cetera, which have some of the worst health outcomes in the country. So can you help to unpack a little bit, you know, what effect does not having insurance or being on Medicaid, which I've read is another predictor of having poor birth outcomes. What effect does that have? Why does that have an effect rather on on maternal mortality rates.
1: Right. So when it comes to being uninsured or, you know, being on Medicaid but not having confidence that you're going to get to hold on to the coverage Mm -hmm. because if you happen to do a little bit better at work and you start to, you know, earn past the eligibility point, then you're gonna lose your Medicaid. And for a lot of working class people, this these are the realities that happen again and again, that you, know, you go in between these periods of being briefly uninsured, then covered by Medicaid, then, oh, if I just stick at this job long enough, the benefits will kick in and I'll be covered again. Yeah. And that fluctuation of being uninsured, partially covered, hoping that coverage will kick in, it changes your decision-making about going to the doctor. Mm. I mean if you rewind back to a woman's life trajectory and look at preconception mm-hmm. where before she even decides that she wants to have children she should be getting an annual physical to you know learn more about her own health you know stop problems before they become bigger problems And to just get questions answered. Mm. I mean, have some peace of mind about, well, this is the way that I've always had my cycle. Is that normal? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a great conversation to have with your doctor and if necessary to work it up. But if you don't have access to that or if that starts to look more and more like a luxury or privilege, then you're going to postpone going to the doctor until you really need Mm -hmm. it or until the system even says, oh, now you are worthy of coming to the doctor. Right. And I think that with Medicare for All, we have the opportunity to just start to unravel some of that culture of are you worthy or unworthy of mm. being at the doctor's mm. office.
0: There are these women who even before they get pregnant are going into the pregnancy potentially with, with health a health situation that is not ideal right. to give birth. So you know, I read, for instance, this statistic was crazy to me. That 20% of African-Americans over the age of 20 have diabetes either diagnosed or undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. And diabetes has an effect right. on pregnancy outcomes. Right. And that there's myriad um, illnesses, heart disease, hypertension, et cetera, that similarly have an effect on these
1: pregnancy oh, outcomes.
0: Right. Um, that people aren't getting treated for because they don't have health care or right. because they have – well. Here's another issue with the Medicaid issue. You know, we met in Philadelphia mm-hmm. where we were there to protest the closure of Hahnemann Hospital, which was is a hospital that has existed for almost 200 years. Something about that. In Philadelphia that serves disproportionately black and brown people. I think two-thirds of the people who serve there and also disproportionately serves people on Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And something that ends up happening, again, because of this bias, that's not just racial bias, there's some class bias, that patients who are on Medicaid will be attended to less sensitively or less, there's less investment on behalf of medical professionals. Mm-hmm. And so people are giving birth in hospital hallways and there's incredible wait times and things like that just because people are low income. Right. And so, you you know, part of the lack of care or, or the, the outcomes, again, are tied to these you know, economic factors, which of course in a country that's pluralistic and has had racial hierarchy since its inception, are going to also be racialized. Right. Right. Like the idea right. that we can like extricate these things is right. kind of like Yeah. Ridiculous. Right. <laughs> okay. So we have getting Medicare for all is, mm-hmm. is something that we can do. You talked a little bit earlier about some of the, the stress related factors. So yeah. are are there are there things that we can do? Like for example, would a a housing plan that takes that stress off the, the plate. Oh, or- yeah.
1: I mean, like you know, when it comes to housing, I, the number of times that patients, like a large part of like what my patients have to do when they come to clinic is update our front desk about their change of address. Mm. And they would have just moved a couple of blocks. Mm. The family, in a strange way, they adapt. And I think that they do so in the sense of like, well, we need to get a roof over our head and get through this. But in those series of adaptations, I kind of wonder, like, whether the whole system is is never going to hit that pause button and say, hold up a second. This is a mom with three kids. Like, should they be moving this often? Like, what is making them move this often? And to have stable housing is, I think, such a fundamental part of our human experience. It's where, I mean, almost everyone looks at their home at some point as some kind of haven, whether that be, like, you know, personal or with your family. But the idea that home is your safe place, that you know where it is, you can always come back to it, that you're going to be warm and fed, and that is not an easy assumption to make, especially for people of color in this country. And those are the kinds of health outcomes that I can't write a prescription all the time for that. I mean, there's tons of advocacy that pediatricians do around housing. My colleagues are very involved with a lot of that. And we push for stronger housing programs all the time. But I think it's one of those issues that if we actually did it as a country, as opposed to just leaving it up to a few do-gooder regions here and there, I think that that actually sends, again, a cultural message Mm. that all of us are worthy of a home. Yeah.
0: This point about the importance of housing really resonated with me. I'd recently come across an article by Elizabeth Dawes Gay, co-director of the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, in which she made the same point. The article argues that housing instability is an important yet overlooked factor in the maternal health crisis. Not only does housing instability create stress for mothers, Gay wrote that homelessness makes it difficult for expecting families and parents to obtain quality, affordable care if they're forced to relocate to a community without such access. A five-city survey found that homelessness during pregnancy was associated with an increased likelihood preterm birth and low birth weight. Lower birth weight is associated with poor health outcomes in infancy and across the life course. So much of the, in the popular imagination, our cultural imagination, we watch these movies like Father of the Bride. You know, when you have a baby, it's all about nesting and painting yeah. the room and yeah. then these montage scenes and you do, you know, all these like gendered color yeah. expectations yeah. in the bedroom. And then the reality For probably a majority of Americans, is not just not nesting with a full like thousand dollars worth of Pottery bar materials to literally not know where you're going to be living next month. It's an extraordinary thing to wrap your head around. And what I'm hearing from you is that you know there are people who have presented solutions to the maternal um, mortality rate that don't start with Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. which don't start with ensuring. Every American, okay. right? Because we know, and again, in this country, this country that has these racial hierarchies, if we have a healthcare system that doesn't guarantee insurance to all, we can all predict who disproportionately is not going right. to be insured, right. right? So there are these people who have, sol- have presented solutions that don't include Medicare for all, which provide incentives which would punish hospitals like Hahnemann Hospital right. um, for having bad maternal outcomes, when really they have bad maternal outcomes because it's a hospital that's actually willing to see Medicaid patients, you Correct. know, lower income patients, right? right? So providing kind of a perverse incentive there, it seems like it requires a systemic approach, right? A policy platform that says we're going to provide housing as a human right, we're going to provide healthcare as a human right, we're going to provide education and resources right. as a human right. There's no one thing that you can point to.
1: Oh, yeah. There's no magic bullets in any of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number of times that I've gone to the grocery store and I see a mom, a pregnant mom on her feet working at a yeah. job that. I know that that job does not have a predictable schedule. I know that her workload does not necessarily have any kind of predictability to it. The day that one nice manager is on vacation is going to be a really rough week for her. Yeah. I'm not saying that pregnant women shouldn't work. It's that they should work with jobs that have dignity, yeah. that respect what the processes are, that they respect that, yeah, this person is going through a vulnerable period of their life. We, we as a workplace can adapt. Yeah. And I mean, and these are all of the little, little things. It's always, a, to me, it's it's all these little pushes and nudges that everybody contributes to that build our collective public health as a public good. Yeah. That becomes something that all of us are invested in and all of us actually benefit from. Yeah,
0: and you raise an interesting point. You say, you know, it's not that she shouldn't be able to work, but we are also a country that is... Well behind most of the other the industrialized world mm-hmm. with respect to the the leave time right. that women right. get either before or after their pregnancy, yeah. so there are women who are not recovering. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. They're not recovering from the trauma of of childbirth right. and being forced right back into the job market, or yeah. not being able to rest the way they need to, or they've been indicated it's been indicated by their doctors they need to rest prior to giving birth right. in order to secure a a healthy pregnancy.
1: Yeah, and I mean, and we know from science and from medical science. They've looked at, at medical leave and especially at maternity leave, and they feel that the minimum time that's good is twelve weeks. Yeah, and I was expecting this like when I was you know talking to my employer, I thought, oh, you know, we we follow science here, right? Like you know, twelve weeks. And the message I got back from HR is that yeah, but we're talking about your paternity leave. You get two weeks, and I was like, hold up, hold up. Like you're telling me that my partner has this other person. And I'm a pretty involved dad. And I have to be back at this job. Yeah,
0: bye, honey. You're split from tip to toe. It, but I'll, I'll see you in eight hours. Yeah.
1: I mean, like, she's <laughs> not even fully recovered from the childbirth process yet. This is a newborn that we're talking about. Yeah. and And yet we have even in medical workplaces, you know, we don't always adhere to the science that we know is right to right. keep people healthy. And so to me, like, I, I look at Medicare for All, I appreciate all the provisions that are there. I've gone through the policy, I'm really familiar with it. But I know that it is not this, like, panacea that, oh, like, you know, we prescribe this and everything just radiates from there. It's like, no, this is the contribution that we make to this part of the system. Workplace justice is still a huge undertaking, and it has a lot to do with health. It's just that we don't necessarily always ask doctors what they think about these policies. Or when we do, you know, there's always somebody coming back saying that yeah, the shareholders aren't gonna like that. Mm. So we're not going to go with that policy.
0: I think this is is a really important point because there is this way in American politics that we are used to understanding policies that are designed to address particular ills as you know, Brianna Gray policy to fix poverty. The Mm -hmm. Brianna Gray policy to fix the maternal health gap, yeah. you know, the Brianna Gray policy to resolve housing. And the reality is that if you take an issue, you know, we talk about intersectionality a lot, mm-hmm. but there is this intersectionality with respect to how to design policy that we right. have to keep in mind, too. Right. And so there, the idea that some people might put forward like a fix that's labeled so that it seems like we're going to throw you know this amount of money at this problem, you know, what it really takes to create um, substantive equality is to say we have to have a rights-based humanistic approach to resolving these these right. harms. And that doesn't mean by the way that the goal of addressing racism comes off the table. Right. You no know, part right. of the Medicare for All policy. A lot of people don't know is that. There's like in the it creates an office of primary health yeah. Which figures out how to cr- increase access to care yeah. and in- includes how to train the workforce to address these di- disparities. Something that Bernie Sanders talks a lot about is uh, funding HBCUs, yeah. fully funding HBCUs, so that we have more black doctors. Canceling student debt uh, yep. means that those black doctors don't feel compelled to take the highest earning job that right. they can and it can go and work in some of these communities that are being underserved and have lower, yeah. worse, worse health outcomes. Are there any other kinds of things that I, I might be missing that are a part of this agenda?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think you're really nailing it because when I look at even my own colleagues, mm-hmm. right, and the choices that they've had to make for career mm-hmm. and for family and realizing that how much like, you know, even among physicians, like people quietly sacrifice pieces of their health here and there. People quietly sacrifice like a dream here or an ambition there just because they've got student debt that they need to cover because their housing is ridiculously expensive because they want to afford better childcare. And then you start to find out, well, what, like, let's go back to some of these pieces you put down Let's talk for a second here. And it's like, oh, this is why you're burning out. Yeah. Because, you know, you gave up on this thing that used to bring joy to your life, like, you know, once a week. And you decided to put that aside. Yeah. Oh, you originally came from a rural area. And, you like, that was where you always envisioned yourself going back home to. But you cannot, like, that's not a place where you feel you can afford to make a living and pay back your loans, like, I mean, you start to see that, like, there are all these fragments that we all leave behind. And I think that in some ways, a lot of the capitalist run amok looks at those sacrifices and says that, oh, well, that's responsible decision making, you can't have it all. And it's like, this isn't really so much about having it all as much as it is that a lot of us when we wrote our personal statements to get into medical school, Mm -hmm. like, none of us wrote that, oh, I want to be a corporate shell that like fills out paperwork for Aetna and does it again and then uses a fax machine because they say that they lost it and they can't do electronic copies. I want to be on the phone haggling with the pharmacy about last year's formulary versus this year's formulary. And I promise you, if you let me in, I'll be the best at all of it. And it's like, that, nobody wrote that. Yeah. I didn't write that. On, nobody writes yeah. that on their, uh, on their med school application essay. But yet th- these are, this is kind of what the system forces you to become. Yeah. And I do envision that, you know, with a lot of the policies that we've been talking about, that people might be able to get back in touch with, like, what has been driving them all this time and actually put that sweat and grind and hustle into something that is productive for themselves and for their communities. And for their communities.
0: That's, that's a really important point, because there's been some pushback about the idea that Bernie Sanders is going to cancel all student debt, right, as opposed to capping it at a certain salary level, mm-hmm. as, as other candidates have said. And some people will say that's that's smart because why do we need people who are making, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars yeah. a year yeah. to have their debt canceled? Well, that's what we're talking about in many instances is a doctor who might have three hundred, dollars yeah. four hundred thousand dollars worth of, of, of debt. debt. Right who might be earning over $150,000 yeah. a year, but is paying astronomical, an astronomical amount in student loans every month, right. who absolutely is not going to be able to go to a rural hospital, is not right. going to be going to one of these community health health centers that, again, Senator Sanders has paid so much attention to and found $12 billion worth right. of funding for to support in these communities that are serviced. Hospitals are not going to populate those areas. Yeah.
1: And, uh, and honestly, like, I mean... I'm I'm a pediatrician. I'm all for the expansion of primary care, to, especially the places that need it. But, you know, the number of times that I've heard families say, you know, tell me about their loved ones who live in a rural area that need surgeons, that mm. need specialists, that need mental health. Mm. And, I mean, you know, it's really tough to get those specialties out there when they are burdened with this kind of debt. And I think that especially when it comes to student debt. What I feel is unique about that burden is, is that this is work that people took on, and it's not just healthcare, but it's it's that people took on this work because they wanted to be bigger than what they were when mm. they started the process. And they envisioned something for themselves and their community, and even, no matter how big or small that was, but it was larger than themselves it's not the same thing as forgiving a car loan or a home loan. Mm -hmm. Like, those are things that, yes, those are really strictly for your personal enjoyment and and satisfaction. But education has, like, no matter what major you are, like, I mean, you know, I I know that a lot of people like, you know, to talk about STEAM and STEM and – but it's like even for the people who are creative writing majors, like they were really thinking about writing the next great novel that almost yeah. any of us would have loved to have picked we're up. we just
0: getting a liberal arts education that doesn't put you in a place where – as someone who went to law school, mm-hmm. I ended up sitting next to a lot of people who had no relationship to how the world works, no mm-hmm. understanding of history, no understanding of kind of like basic human impulses. And you get these people making decisions about our economy, our legal system, yeah. which says things like – Willingness to pay equals ability to pay. You know, I, I could go on for ages about all the dumb things that were said by these ostensibly brilliant people at the law school that I attended. But the reality is that understanding how humanity works, being in professional career environments with people of different class backgrounds, yeah. if the only way you can access someone of a different class background is by reading the jungle, right. then your English class did something better for you than yeah, a lot of absolutely. these other STEM classes. You know, before we wrap up, I just really want to be clear Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, because there is this kind of either or dynamic that has emerged by some people discussing the issue, particularly of the Black maternal health disparity, Mm -hmm. that posits that because race and racism is such an essential component of this that exists even among the very privileged, Mm -hmm. that it is a misnomer to suggest that any of the other factors which predict bad maternal outcome uh, maternal health outcomes are inadequate. Yeah. And is it would it be accurate to say these other factors that we can't control are insufficient but necessary?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, insufficient but necessary is kind of like a large part of what almost all of us do in healthcare, right? I mean, that like, when, you know, when I've got obese kids who come Mm -hmm. back and tell me at their weight check that like, I gave up chocolate milk, and then I'm kind of like looking at the Doritos bag that they're like eating solo. and It's like, Okay, insufficient but necessary, you know? Like, I mean, like, all right. Like, you know, your teeth are going to probably appreciate you giving up all that sugary stuff. So let's chalk that up for a win and now let's start talking about these Doritos. It's like, I mean, we have to be willing to, like, look at all the different fragments that got us to where we are and to do all the different augmentations that that we can, never knowing really actually which augmentation is going to have bigger ripple effects than we could have anticipated. Yeah. When it comes to, yes, fight racism, like, you know, with all your heart. I mean, you know, and prioritize it. Absolutely. And to be
0: clear, it is prioritized as part of Medicare for All. There is this provision that says we have to have um, racial bias training as a part of Medicare for All. And I think that that gets lost in the story. Yeah. uh, Unfortunately, I really want to highlight that here. Oh, absolutely.
1: And, I mean, I think that that is also another part of, like, even when it comes to, like, the kinds of people that I want to see join healthcare from here on out Mm. is that I don't really want the country kid, like the country club alumni kids to show up at med school because they were the ones who could, you know, put down the tuition bills for four years of undergrad and give up, you know, summers where they chased whoever in some whatever part of the world or wherever. Right. Instead of, you know, going home and taking care of an elderly, you know, loved one or, right. or getting a job that is just kind of, you know, retail or something. I want people who have lived life, yeah. who know what it is to walk in those shoes, who know what it is to go to a pharmacy and like open your pocketbook and realize like, I don't know if I can do groceries and the copays yeah. for, you know, these prescriptions. And, you know, people who have been through that, you know, that journey themselves are going to have a lot more to bring to like the art and science of medicine than I think our current crop does even.
0: Well, I, I just really want to thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Your advice has been invaluable.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, and
0: I'm glad that there is a Dr. America out there on the street. Yeah, streets. <laughs>
1: absolutely.
0: Before we leave this week, I wanted to read a letter we got from a listener. Now, This is hardly the first time I've been moved by those of you who've written in. I really want to take this moment to honor the time and the vulnerability involved in you all sharing your stories with me via email. I've read them all, and I appreciate them deeply, even if I don't always have the time or space to share them here. But this week, we got a letter from someone with a particularly moving story who was generous enough to tell us we could share it with you here. The letter is from Cody Franks, from Santa Cruz, California. Cody says he first became a Sanders supporter in 2015, after a Reddit AMA Bernie did during the last election cycle. He says in his own words, It was my first time hearing about Senator Sanders, and I read his responses during my lunch break at my underpaid food service job. Right away, I was filled with hope from his words and ideals. And if anything, my opinion of Bernie has only grown since then. The part of Bernie's campaign that excites me the most is his belief in healthcare as a human right. See, I have cystic fibrosis, and at 33 years old, I have three times lived past the life expectancy that my doctors had given me. When I was 15, I was told I would be dead by the age of 30. When I was 24, I was lucky enough to benefit from the then-passed ACA and not lose coverage under my parents' plan. Also at age 24, I lost my older sister to the same disease. She was only 27 when she died. Also around this time, just before the ACA went into effect, I was trying to purchase my own personal plan and actually had an insurance representative say to me about why they would not insure me, quote, this is a business and if you are a business, would you really want to waste your money on a lost cause? They really said that to me, told me to my face, that I was not only a waste, but a lost cause. Thanks to the ACA, I was eventually able to buy my own personal insurance plan. But then two years ago, due to financial struggles, I missed a payment and had my coverage canceled. I was very lucky that my wonderful wife and partner has a good teaching job, and I was able to find coverage through her insurance. To me, a Bernie presidency really is a matter of life and death. Americans need and deserve healthcare as a human right. That is why I will do anything in my power to spread the word and do my part to get Senator Sanders elected as our next president. Thank you, Cody, for reminding us all why we're in this fight together. Now, Cody is a musician and he shared a song, which he says he wrote for the campaign immediately after he watched Bernie's 2020 campaign launch video. I thought it was too cute not to share. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
1: I am one of Bernie's little birds. I perch upon his every word. I fly to fight the power. And I will sing every hour. Until we have made a better world. I am one of Bernie's little birds. Fat cats are scared of these words. If we all flock together, birds of a feather, we can make a better world.
0: That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at HearTheBurn at Bernie Or send us a tweet using the hashtag HearTheBurn. If you haven't already, Please take a moment to rate, review, or like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. As always, transcripts will be up soon. Till next time.